And please open in your copy of the scriptures to Malachi chapter 1, beginning with verse 6, where Rusty read this morning. We opened this book up last Sunday. It's a heavy book. It's called The Burden. It's what he brings. It's the oracle. It's the heavy-weighted message from God through the hand of Malachi to Israel. Remember, Israel, they're broken. They're dried up. At this point, they're discouraged. They're disappointed. They're disillusioned. A century earlier, these refugee Israelites had returned with great joy and excitement from exile in Babylon. They were eager to rebuild and start over in the promised land they had lost to Babylon almost 70 years earlier. But that was a hundred years ago. And it might as well have been a thousand. Zeal steadily eroded in every meaningful area of their lives. Their population, their land, their economy, their politics, their spiritual vitality. The very covenant God had made with Israel's father Abraham uh, a covenant of land, a great people, and a blessing to the nation was now a cruel mirage. It had been and was now gone. Severe drought has brought Israel to poverty. Their fields and their barns are bare. Their future is bleak. Politically, they are no longer an influential kingdom ruled by a descendant of their great King David. Now Persia is their master. Israel has become a servant to a foreign nation. 13,000 square miles of the land of Canaan in the glory days of King David and Solomon shrank to a meager 600 square miles, half the size of Sedgwick County. A growing population of 5 million has been decimated by 97% to a meager 150,000 men and women and children. Solomon's great landmark temple, the beauty of Jerusalem, unmatched in its splendor. It was completely destroyed. Not one stone was left upon another by the Babylonian invaders a century earlier. In its place now sits a very meager imitation. In fact, so meager that it is a source of weeping for those who had experienced the other days of the first temple's glory. That's the setting. And the Lord opens this book and He says, I have loved you. But despondent Israel simply responds back, In what way have you loved us? Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, answers the Lord. Israel had been given the exclusive covenant relationship with the creator of the universe. It was initiated by Yahweh the Lord himself. It was based solely on his choice. There was no value, there was no beauty, there was no size, there was no merit at all in Israel. But God had chosen them. But this once glorious reality no longer inflamed the people's hearts. 
the glory of knowing and being known by Yahweh had been supplanted by the enticing but empty and temporary attractions of the neighboring countries. The foreign women, their worship and their way of life had drawn Israel like a dog sniffing and desiring the dung of another. Such idolatry always destroyed them. Their disobedience always dragged them away from the riches of Yahweh to poverty and captivity. Unavoidably, this backsliding created a great deficiency in the empty worship of this dying people. The key ingredient of their very existence had disappeared long ago. Like an automobile run out of fuel, like a marriage empty of love. The Lord says in chapter 1 verse 6, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts, to you priests who despise my name. Where is Yahweh's honor? A son honors his father. This is a truism even today. Exodus 20 verse 12 even lists this as one of the ten commands of God. Honor your father and your mother. Among all cultures, especially in the Middle East and Asia, this is just a given. Honor is a Hebrew word that literally means heavy. Heavy. A son honors his father by recognizing his weight figuratively. Dad's significance is heavy. His authority is weighty. One scholar concludes that in the old Semitic world, even to the human parent, honor was due before love. Honor was first. Similarly, a slave was to honor his master. And here, the word master is written in a form which means this is a king. A slave honors his king. God's word tells us that Yahweh was father to Israel. Isaiah 63, Doubtless you are our father. Though Abraham was ignorant of us, and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer. From everlasting is your name. Isaiah 64, but now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, you are our potter, and all we are the work of your hand. Yahweh was the Father, but likewise, Scripture indicates Israel truly was a son to him. Isaiah 45, thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and his Maker, ask me of things to come. Concerning my sons. And concerning the work of my hands. Hosea 11. When Israel was a child. I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. The logic here is that if Yahweh is father. And Israel is his son. Where is Israel's weight of glory to him? Where is the honor that was due the father God? It's obvious It is gone. They give God no respect. 
Yahweh has no weight. He has no significance any longer. Where is my reverence? Yahweh asks the priest. Both reverence and honor in verse 6 hammer home the same message. Israel has honor and reverence for earthly authorities like fathers and kings, but none for the Lord of hosts, their true father and king. This father saved them. This king carried them faithfully and forgivingly through centuries of rebellion, idolatry, and wickedness. But not only is honor gone, but these priests, these priests actually despise the name of Yahweh. The grammar here indicates Israel's despising the Lord is continual. That is all the priests do in their godly worship anymore. Godless worship. That's all they do. It is continual. And here is the priest's response to this serious accusation. In what way have we despised your name? They could not see it. They would not see it. You see, decades of disobedience resulted in lovelessness toward their Lord. Sin hardened the priests of Israel in 430 B.C. Paul warned about it again 500 years later. In Hebrews 3, he writes, But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Sin deceives us, and as it deceives us, it hardens our hearts. Sin destroys and hardens right now. Sin is hardening some of your hearts at this very moment. There is unconfessed sin encrusting your heart like a cocoon of steel. It is steadily removing you from sensitivity to God. And you may not even realize it. I do not know that the priest did. Sin is ruthless, sometimes violent and bold, other times gradual and subtle, like the slow but sure piece of wood petrifying into solid rock. God graciously warns us to flee from sin for good reason. In Romans 6, we read, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies, that you should obey it in its lusts. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul again writes, Therefore, my beloved, flee, flee from idolatry. Anything that places itself before me in your life, flee from it. The Lord answers the priest's objection in verse 7. You offer defiled food on my altar, but say, In what way have we defiled you? By saying, The table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably? Says the Lord of hosts. Will Yahweh accept this? You defile me this way, says the Lord of hosts. You present polluted food on my altar and then say, In what way have we defiled you? 
Yahweh answers by saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. Contrary to honoring God, they despised his name. And again, this is not once, not occasionally. But the priests continually brought offerings that were literally contaminated, unfit, and unqualified. The offerings were polluted because they clearly did not meet the requirements God specifically set forth in His Word. They were not even close. But these defilements were compounded by more failures. You see, the priests. The priests had defiled themselves. How? By marrying women from idolatrous neighboring nations. By rejecting the requirements of the priesthood, the priests themselves polluted the already polluted sacrifices that they offered. It was a mess compiling and compounding upon each. By pursuing their own pleasure rather than God's honor, they treated every part of their priesthood with contempt. Had these priests literally said, the table of the Lord is despised, Probably not. But their very lives had drowned out the emptiness of any words. The Lord knew their hearts while their actions left no doubt to their godlessness. The evidence was indisputable. Continually the priests brought to the altar blind, lame, and sick sacrifices. And Israel knew this was wrong. Leviticus 22, 21 and whoever offers a sacrifice of a peace offering to the Lord to fulfill his vow or a free will offering from the cattle or the sheep, it must be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no defect in it. Deuteronomy 15, 21. But if there is a defect in it, if it is lame or blind or has any serious defect, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. As clear as it could possibly be. Such defective animals were acceptable to eat, but strictly forbidden for sacrifice. But the priests, the priests no longer cared for the Lord's requirements. They were simply fulfilling religious routine. Stone cold hearts toward the Lord result in meaningless and hypocritical sacrifice. In verse 6, the Lord used the example of a son honoring his father and a slave his master. Again, here he uses a very easy to understand comparison with a rhetorical question. Try presenting that to your governor. Will he accept it? Will he show you favor? It's very easy to see where this is going. The priests and the people would never think of offering a second or third-rate animal as a gift of their political authorities. You see, the governor of Israel, who was he? He was really a very small fish in a huge Persian pond. He had power over a tiny little land and a very small group of people. Nevertheless, Israelite priests would assuredly show him honor and reverence with any gift they might offer or that this governor might require. But to Yahweh, Sabaoth, 
the Lord of hosts, the covenant-keeping Lord of all His forces in the heavens and throughout the earth, the creator of the universe, governor among the nations. To Him they bring the damage, the leftover, the useless animals for sacrifice. Don't be a fool, Malachi exhorts. But now entreat God's favor that He may be gracious to us. Well, this is being done by your hands. Will He accept you favorably? Says the Lord of hosts. You wouldn't dare offer those to your governor, so don't use them to appease God. Peter Berhoff said this. He said, If they would not have a chance to secure the governor's favor with their detestable gifts, how would they ever be able to succeed in appeasing the stern face of God? The Lord makes clear that the priests are performing their religious functions in complete hypocrisy. While the priests perform faithless, polluted, pious duties, with no honor to God, they clearly prove they have no intention of sinking God's grace or His forgiveness. For they ask in verse 6, In what way have we despised your name? And in verse 7, In what way have we defiled you? There is no repentance because there is no recognition of their sin. You see, they had once known Yahweh. They had at one time honored Him in obedience and reverence. But to borrow Paul's words in Romans 1, although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Their ability to recognize their own sin, even the obvious, was gone. This has been about priests. This has been about an ancient people four centuries before Christ came. But this is about us. Where is our heart? Where is our honor? To the King of Kings, the Lord of Sabaoth. Does He reign? Or he, is He an add-on? Is He a tradition? Is He a cultural benefit at this time? If He is our Father... If he is our king, our master, how are we serving him? What sacrifice do we bring? Verse 10, who is there even among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. One commentator concluded, a closed temple, however terrible this may be, is preferable to the perpetuating of worthless worship. A worship that does not acknowledge and honor God is worse than no worship at all. A fellow by the name of Brandenburg said, and listen to this carefully, please. It is better to be speechless than to blaspheme. It is preferable to experience the agony, agony of being far away from God 
than to deceive oneself by assuming that God will listen to the appeals of a hypocrite. Let me read that again. It is better to be speechless than to blaspheme. It is preferable to experience the agony of being far away from God than to deceive oneself by assuming that God will listen to the appeals of a hypocrite. Ouch! This strikes home. The doors the Lord is asking to be shut are the large double doors of entry into either the court of the priests which contain the tables used for sacrifice or into the inner court with the altar of burnt offerings. You shut those doors and offerings end. Why would that be? Because every offering and sacrifice now presented was continual and meaningless. They just kept offering them over and over again with lame, sick, blind animals in complete violation of the requirements of God. But I ask you, so what? Why is this so important? The animals bled. They died. Wasn't that the point? Why did God require that animals be without blemish and without spot? Why would God be so picky? Because that animal did not matter. But who that animal represented did. Hebrews 9 says, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God. Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, because he offered himself without spot to God, Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. That those who are called may receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. What a blessing. That's the promise. That's the inheritance. But it came at the greatest of price. The one pure spotless Lamb of God would lay down His life. 1 Peter 1.18 Another reason why you wouldn't offer sick, lame, blemished animals. 1 Peter 1.18 Knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world. See, as God presented and gave these requirements for the offering, the spotless Lamb of God had already been foreordained and established before history began. And these sacrifices would be the type and the shadow of Him who was to come and pay the price to pay the redemption for us. That's why they must be spotless. Isaiah 64 verse 4 says, All of our righteousness, they're like filthy rags. We, are, we all fade as a leaf. 
and our iniquities like the wind has taken us away. But Galatians 3 tells us Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us. We often tell people somebody will pay for your sin. But someone also must be a curse for your sin. And that will be Christ who will be cursed for your sin or it will be you who will be cursed for your sin for eternity. Christ paid it. Christ bore the curse in our place. 2 Corinthians 5 says, For He, God, made Him who knew no sin, Christ, to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He was spotless until He took upon Himself the filth and stench of our sin. But what is Malachi saying here? Really, let's go back to Malachi. What is he saying? Is it hopeless then? Is Yahweh left with nothing but these meaningless, hypocritical, false worshipers? Will no one truly worship Him? We see Israel's hypocrisy in the previous verses. Now we read verse 11. And look at it please carefully. For from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. In verses 8 through 10, the Lord's name was not honored or feared. But in verse 11, this shall be great among the Gentiles. In the Jerusalem temple of verses 8 through 10, offerings were polluted and despised. But verse 11 says, In every place incense shall be offered to my name and pure offerings. Where is this place? Where is this place where Yahweh's name is great and the offerings pure? It is a place among the Gentiles. It is among the nations. Moses prophesied in Deuteronomy chapter 32, hundreds of years before Malachi. He said, They have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. They have moved me, God, to anger by their foolish idols. But I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move them to anger by a foolish nation. Don't get lost with me here. Please understand. Five centuries later, Paul would quote this proclaiming, this proclamation that God had opened the door of His kingdom to foolish Gentiles. That's us. We had no right to this kingdom. But He opened the door to the foolish nation. We would be those who would truly honor Him. But it says Israel would reject the Christ. John wrote, He came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on His name. You see, the borders of God's new kingdom of honor would be in nations stretching from the rising to the setting of the sun. In other words, throughout the entire planet. Everywhere on this earth. 
Such a glorious place is proclaimed again in Psalm 50, verse 1. The mighty one, God the Lord, has spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun to its going down. Psalm 113, verse 3, from the rising of the sun to its going down, the Lord's name is to be praised. Verhoff said, the honor due to the name of the Lord is, according to this text, not confined to the temple in Jerusalem, to the centralized place of worship, but that it is glorified among the heathen, far and wide beyond the boundaries of Palestine. This could very well, this could very well include people at the time of Malachi, such as Jews in other lands who had not returned to Jerusalem. It could include proselytes, those from other nations who had truly turned to God in faith. But it also seems to point to a future reality that Zephaniah prophesied in chapter 2 verse 11. The Lord will be awesome to them. For he will reduce to nothing all the gods of the earth. People shall worship him, each one from his place, indeed all the shores of the nations. David also writes in Psalm 65, O you who hear prayer, to you all flesh will come, he says to the Lord. By awesome deeds and righteousness, you will answer us, O God, of our salvation. You who are the confidence of all the ends of of the earth and of the far off seas. God's kingdom will not be contained in that little 20 by 30 mile patch of land in the Middle East. It will spread throughout the entire world. Jesus spoke to the Samaritan woman at a well about this coming day of true worshipers. In John chapter 4 verse 20 the woman said to him, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is a place where one ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming... And now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. This is truly the highlight of the text this morning. This, when we pray for the little church in Lebanon that has essentially been made up of refugees who fled from ISIS and Assad and the rebels in Assyria into Lebanon and now have left Islam and become believers in Christ. These are those from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. From those in Cameroon where we see our brother Mark and Rachel labor to plant hearts with the seed of the gospel. Some of them are included in this prophecy. Those in Uzbekistan, those in the Ukraine in the midst of this war that are hearing the gospel and being saved to eternity from condemnation. They will be in this kingdom that truly offers a pure offering that gives praise and honors the name of the Lord. It will no longer be contained in that little, compared to the original, almost a hovel of a temple. It will no longer be contained there. It will spread 
because it is not to be contained. The Lord has no interest in religious activities. Let me back up here. Verse 12. Here the Lord, the Lord exposes the empty worship of Israel. But you profane it. And that you say, the table of the Lord is defiled. And its fruit, its food is contemptible. You also say, oh, what a weariness. Then you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring the stolen, the lame, and the sick. Thus you bring an offering. Should I accept this from your hand, says the Lord? The weariness in worship. That's, that's almost frightening to read. The Lord lays bare the inner hearts of the priests and the people. You profane the name of the Lord. You make it meaningless is what it says. It, it's empty. It has no weight, no glory. Though the priests may not say it out loud, their ambivalence reveals the utter emptiness of their heart. The priesthood, the priestly duties, the offerings and the sacrifices, they have become what? A tireless requirement. It is weariness. It's hardship for us to have to do this. These priests and the people were oblivious to truth the Lord spoke earlier through the prophet Micah. Micah chapter 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and, humil and walk humbly with your God? He has no interest in the dutiful weariness of religious activity. He desires three things. Justice, mercy, and humility before God. In chapter 1 now, it ends in verse 14 with a specific example of what the Lord is describing. He says, But cursed be the deceiver, the cheat, who has in his flock a male. And he takes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. This man is labeled a deceiver. But why? What does he first do here? He takes a vow. What does a vow require? It was known. Leviticus chapter 22 verse 19. You shall offer of your own free will a male without blemish from the cattle, from the sheep, or from the goats. And if it had been simply a free will offering, he might have been fine. But Leviticus 22, 23 specifies either a bull or a lamb that has any limb too long or too short, you may offer as a free will offering. But for a vow, it shall not be accepted. The deceiver, although he apparently has a male animal that meets the offering requirements for a vow, instead offers a blemished animal. In some way polluted. And this he gives. To the unrecognizable. Great king of all creation. Not simply the king over little decimated Israel. He as it says. Six times in these verses. Is the Lord of hosts. The Lord Sabaoth. He is the great king. 
And this is what he receives. Psalm 47 2 says, For the Lord Most High is awesome. He is a great king over all the earth. Psalm 48 verse 2, beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north. The city of the great king. And Psalm 95 3, for the Lord is the great God and the great king above all gods. Where does this put us? Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9. Some may say, well, we're just the people. We weren't alive back then. It's not our role. 1 Peter 2 verse 9 says, but you are a chosen generation of God's people. It says you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You who once were not a people, but now are the people of God. You who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. We owe him everything. And he has placed us into the role of priests. Then turn to Romans 12, verse 1. Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, but I love the translation says, which is your worship to Him. How are we doing as priests offering the sacrifice of our lives to God? Are we content with blemish? Are we, are we offering our King, our Father, our Master, what He required of the priests and the people of Malachi's day? Or have we become very comfortable with knowing the routine? Is attendance the important thing? And has that become weariness? As seeking the Lord and His Word constantly, regularly, a burden, a weariness. Do we guard our lives so they're not blemished? What we eat, drink, watch, listen to, sing, participate in. And I'm not trying to be legalistic. I'm just saying, we've got to guard if we really want to offer our king the best what his word directs us in. Flee from youthful lusts. Flee from idolatry. Flee from sin. So that we can be as the priests were meant to be, that we will offer our bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God. Now we are only made holy by the sacrifice of His Son 
who has taken our sin. But what we can offer back can be holy as he sanctifies us. Do not resist God. Do not allow sin as it did in those priests' hearts to harden them to where they no longer even could see it. Day in and day out, they put on their robes. They walked to the temple. They laid out the sacrifices. And it had been going on for so long, it was just routine. May we give our lives for the glory and honor of Jesus Christ to Him and Him alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the Word of God. Father, I I thank You for Your prophet Malachi. Lord God, that You would speak through this man to these people. Lord, I, I hope in my heart that some of the priests and the people heard and were part of the remnant that would hold fast to you and would turn away from sin. And Lord, I hope that my heart and the hearts of my brothers and sisters here is tender to you and allows you, desires for you, prays that you would change us and conform us into the image of your Son. We thank you, Lord, that that you have promised to do that in our lives. But we also see the danger and the wickedness and the warnings to flee and stay from sin. Please use us, Father. Use us at Textron, on the farm, at the Walmart, at the schools, on the streets, wherever you have us, Lord. May we be ambassadors for Christ that will bring honor and glory to your name, not only in what we say, but how we live and how we honor you. In your precious and holy and powerful name, we beg and we trust. In your name, amen.